Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. We're so glad to have you with us today. My name is Jason Perry with the Hinckley Institute of Politics, and I'm joined by... I'm Morgan Lyoncotti, and here's a reminder that you can take us wherever you go. Listen live and on demand. Download the KSL News Radio app, powered by any hour services. Love the app. Thanks, Morgan. Uh, let's let's get into a couple of things uh, that, that you and I just love. I think you in particular. You just pull up those spreadsheets on polling every time I talk to you. Projections, changes. I love getting that from you every day. Thanks for outing me as the office's biggest data geek. Well, I love it. You, know, you had all kinds of predictions, and it turns out most of them are right. But we, guess who? We were pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah. It's because we had the help of the great Jay Evenson with us as we started to work through this polling and the numbers. And we're so glad to have you with us, uh, uh, Jay. He's the senior your editorial columnist with the Deseret News. And, and Jay, just thanks for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. You're too kind. Thank you. Well, as we get ready to talk about some of the polling, uh, l- let me just ask you a couple questions about this relationship. The Hinckley Institute is just so thrilled to be a partner with the Deseret News and with you and the rest of the team to do very consistent polling uh, throughout the state of Utah following key issues that we think are going to pack the state. Maybe talk for a second about about that uh, that relationship, You know, y- your side, why you wanted to enter in that thing, and why polling is an important thing in the, in the news business. Well, thank you. Uh, Yeah, and we're excited to have the Hinckley Institute as partners as well. Plus, we're using um, pollster Scott Rasmussen, uh, who has a great reputation, a lot of integrity as as a pollster. Polling has uh, always been an integral part of uh, Deseret News news coverage. And, you know, I think um, this week offers a good example. You know, we had a um, a county commission meeting in Utah County, which uh, everybody heard about. A lot of people showed up and they were protesting – uh, the use of masks and the social distancing and all of that. And it's easy to look at that. There were about 100 people there and to say, you know, wow, this is a, this is a bad trend. Everybody in Utah County doesn't want people to wear masks. Well, we don't know if that's true. And that's why you do polling, because you, with polling, uh, you can sample uh, the whole state and find out how people really feel. How do people in Utah County feel about wearing masks? And then you can put some perspective on it and say, well, uh, you know, that that uh, group was a small minority, maybe, or maybe that group did represent what most people feel down there. So I, it's very important for perspective. And then also, of course, it's very important in the political realm as we follow, uh, particularly an election year like this one, as we follow uh, candidates and try to see uh, who's ahead and, and uh, how things change and how attitudes change over time. Uh, there's some fascinating stories that come out from polling. So uh, I hope that answers your question, but that's, uh, polling is, is really an essential part of what we do. I want 
to dive into this pull. I mean, the masks a little bit more and because mm-hmm. we've seen some interesting things and we know that there's not just a partisan gap. There's also a gender gap in who wears masks. We see a, an interesting re, uh, polling and study from Pew so, showed women are more likely to wear masks. There's a huge gap between Democrats and Republicans. I know you've you've covered politics for so many years. What what have you seen in the polling and also just with, you know, your best expert analysis. What's driving that? Yeah, Yeah, you know, in the last poll we did, we asked specifically, uh, how long will it be before you feel comfortable going out in public without wearing a mask? And the first uh, answer, uh, uh, we gave several possible choices. The first one we gave was, I'm already comfortable. I already feel it's okay to wear masks. Now, now, uh, let's put this in perspective. This was a a June poll, so we're talking about uh, a month and a half ago. Uh, really before this surge uh, kind of got going. But 42% overall of people said, hey, they're already comfortable. If you break that down, um, men were much more comfortable doing it than women. Well, men were, I think, 46% and women 38%. And then we followed that up. We said, okay, of you people who are already comfortable, would you, when when other people, you encounter other people who are nervous about wearing a mask and would kind of like you to wear one around them, will you respect their their wishes and wear a mask? And uh, the total was 57%, but it was men about 54% and women 60%. So um, it, it's clear, and, and, you know, women seem to be more prone to wearing masks than men. This also broke out along party lines. Uh, Republicans much less likely to wear masks than Democrats. Um, why this is happening, I don't know. Somewhere along the line, wearing a mask became political, um, and it, it really is. You know, I've been I've been at this a long time, as you said, and I really didn't see this coming. I don't understand other than maybe. There's a feeling among uh, Republicans that's more stronger than among Democrats that, well, we don't like the government telling us what to do. And there's a feeling that the government here is telling you, uh, here's, here's what you have to do. And we, and we just kind of naturally rebel against that. Uh, but when all the, expert, the experts are telling us this is the way to, to stem the tide of this virus, uh, how this became a political issue it will be an interesting study someday for people a lot smarter than I am. Uh, but uh, but it's real and uh, it's it's a difficult one to counter, as we saw in Utah County last this last week. Well, I have to say, Jay, you are one of the smartest political minds in the state. I love hearing your writing. So I'm going to push you just a little bit on that because I'm kind of curious. As you start looking at how, like, let's take the mask issue, how it's become political, I'm curious about how the polling on, like, an item like that impacts uh, our public officials. You mentioned, uh, you know, that Democrats are more likely to say they're well the mask than Republicans. But look at a like a state like Utah, which sort of which, which is more red. So they're on the the more of the less likely side. What is an what is an elected leader going to do or what are they supposed to say when they see a poll, a poll like that and they have to make the decision? So a lot of a lot of Republican leaders are telling me they're trying really hard to thread the needle on this. Because they they worry, uh, well, they worry about a couple of things. Just from a raw political standpoint, they don't want to uh, offend their base uh, by by pushing this by uh, by making it a, a mandate. But um, 
at the same time, I think there's a genuine worry that if you make it a mandate, there may be a rebellion and, and maybe more people will not wear it than if you make it a suggestion. Um, and that's, that's kind of an interesting sort of a reverse psychology kind of thing. And you add into this mix now uh, private companies that are beginning to uh, to require it. Um, and, of course, Salt Lake County, the largest uh, county in, in the state in terms of population, uh, is it now has a mask mandate. But, of course, Salt Lake County is run by a Democratic mayor. Salt Lake City has a Democratic mayor. They are less concerned, I think, about losing support from a base. So I, I really think that there's those two things going on. We don't want to offend our base, although that's not shouldn't really be that big of a concern in a state uh, as red as Utah. I don't think people are going to suddenly vote Democrat because a Republican told them to wear a mask. Um, but I think there is this concern that, that people will, will rebel and will just say, no, I'm not going to do it because the government tells me I have to. And if you're really concerned about public health, uh, that that's something you want to try to avoid. So I want to switch gears for a second. The early polling in Utah and Texas and some other conservative states are showing Biden doing surprisingly well in these presidential polls. But this is something we saw in 2016. Things shifted, and then there were surprises at the end. So I know we're talking about how interesting polls are, but I want to hear, are you trusting these? Are you a little suspect of them because of what have happened in 2016? You know, um, I still trust polls, and I, I've listened to uh, Scott Rasmussen talk about this, and he strongly defends what happened in 2016 from the polling point of view. He says, you know, we, they, pollsters, had this right. They had Hillary about uh, 2% or so ahead, and she ended up winning the popular vote. What they missed was an analysis of how that translated into the electoral a college, and in key states that had traditionally been Democrat, the margin was extremely thin on those polls, and they probably, they, well, they, they should have been uh, termed toss-up states when they were put into Hillary's uh, column. I think, you know, we learn, I remember studying the 1948 race when uh, a lot of polls picked uh, Thomas Dewey to defeat uh, Harry Truman, and they were dead wrong, and and pollsters learned from that, and they uh, they sharpened up their their sampling. Uh, and I think everyone learned from 2016, yep. and you're going to that see a pi- lot that more picture. Care. That picture of Truman holding Dewey wins, and is is in every American tech, government yeah, textbook. Yeah, that exactly. was a mistake. Oh, it's, <laughs> anybody who's gone to school has okay. that appeared in their in their minds, right? So uh, they do. <laughs> we want to avoid they that do. kind of thing. Well, Jay, thank you so much for joining us today. Love uh, reading uh, everything you're writing and this great partnership with you on polling. It's important to have polling we trust. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone, please stay tuned. When we come back, we're going to talk with Clark Clark Ivory about a great initiative, the Hope Corps. Welcome back to KSL. You're listening to Live Mike. I am Jason Perry with the Hinckley Institute of Politics with my co-host, Morgan Lyon-Cotty. We're so glad to have you with us today. We've got so many interesting guests today, Morgan. And uh, we're about to have a guest that shares our passion for politics, uh, someone who needs barely needs an introduction, particularly in our circles. But we're going to start talking about uh, a few things with this last election, why, why the primary was just so important. And we're so glad to have Frank Pignanelli, partner with Fox News and Pignanelli here with us today. Frank, thanks for joining us. Hey, well, thank you. Uh, it's good to hear from both of you, Jason and Morgan, on the radio. Usually yeah. it's uh, 
at the Hinkley, so that's kind of fun to have you guys there. Well, I, I can't tell you how much we we appreciate having a chance to work with you, Frank. And you guys are such a great political mind. I love the article that you wrote this past week. Uh, and I want to dive into that a, a little bit because you're you're sort of the uh, ultimate insider on politics. So let, let's talk for just a moment about how absolutely unique this last primary was. Give us some of those key points and, and what you see uh, in terms of how it may change politics going forward. Well, the, the, the interesting thing is that for several years – a lot of people, and you know, I mean, probably even in some ways, me, we always kind of poo-pooed this massive social media presence. That I mean, I respected it, but I was like, can this? I asked the question, can it actually transform anything that Spencer Cox had? He was on Twitter, he was doing all sorts of stuff, and there was always this question: Yeah, they'll people respond to your Twitters, but will they show up and do anything for you? And we got the first sign of that is that strong social media presence. When, you know, as, as candidates now have a choice to go through the convention or go get their, uh, or go through, get their names uh, on a signature petition drive to get their names on the, on the primary ballot. And you, most, I mean, most candidates, most public affairs initiatives to do anything on an, an initiative, they hire somebody. Spencer Cox got, what, 40,000 signatures using volunteers, and obviously a lot of that was through his social media network. That is a phenomenal thing that he did back at the beginning of the year. That should have been a signal that, wait a minute, you're getting all these people to take out time of their day to go in January, <laughs> December and January, to get these uh, petitions signed. And that shows there was a strong presence, that you can actually utilize there's a social media presence, because a lot of people are wondering what would happen with that. So that was a big deal uh, for, for that, because that, that demonstrates that you can do that. Now, most candidates will probably still continue to pay for it, but it also demonstrates if you only put the time in. That's a, that was a big deal. The second thing that really was interesting in, in this campaign that no one predicted, and I mean no one, I don't even think Spencer Cox predicted it, was always assumed that at the convention that Greg Hughes would come out and that Spencer Cox Huntsman would do okay, but not great. But Spencer Cox blew everyone's doors off at the convention. And remember, these were not delegates that were chosen or recruited by any of the candidates. These were 2018 delegates because of the pandemic automatically became 2020 delegates. So Spencer Cox demonstrated that not only can you use a social media presence to help you get the signatures and develop a statewide network, but that also can translate into uh, delegates you may not even selected and using a convince to convince them to vote for you. So there are some major attributes that happened in this election because you had a pandemic on top of it. You had the the, the roller coaster economy, and it, in my opinion, it sends out some lessons that in the future for future candidates. Frank, how much do you think ranked choice voting went into Cox's win at Kimbell? Oh, I'm sorry, what was a lot that? of people. How how much do you think the ranked choice voting helped Cox at convention? Because people do say ranked choice voting keeps people positive, and he certainly does. He he really did campaign positively, and he really tries to stick with that positive, optimistic tone on social media. Well, he was uh, he, uh, he he was positive, which I think. Uh, helped him in his his image as being the good guy, the good guy from rural Utah. The the other thing where I think a lot of people are not understanding of how 
Spencer Cox's image was helped is that, as you know, another wonderfully strange attribute about this election was you had this massive infusion of unaffiliated and a small slice of Democratic voters changing their party affiliation to go vote in this Republican primary. It was unprecedented numbers. I mean, it blew the doors off of anyone who thought that this was going to happen because it's never happened before. And so the theory was that because Huntsman's campaign was recruiting some of these unaffiliated voters, that this massive infusion of unaffiliated uh, voters changing their party registration or vote Republican, they were all going to vote for the most part for Huntsman. That did not happen. Now, a lot of them voted for Huntsman. But you look at both the governor's race, the attorney general's races, and even legislative races, they all pretty much mirrored what was going on uh, with the traditional Republican voters. That's a fascinating dynamic that no one no one's predicted, and that tells you something, too. And what that also demonstrates is what work was working for Spencer Cox with the traditional Republican primary voters was also working to some degree with these unaffiliated voters. And again, that's a lesson to be learned and something to utilize in the future uh, for future campaigns that want, to, that want to utilize, you know, unaffiliated voters and try to convince them to come over to understand that <laughs> – they're their own people. They're going to vote. They're, they're going to. They're, they're going to. They're not going to follow what we do with the conventional wisdom. So I think that's a good thing. But it's, it's also it demonstrates a lesson. But also for those Republicans who are kind of grumpy about all these people showing up, it demonstrates that, not, that these people are not there to sabotage the Republican primary. They're pretty much they're supporting what's going on anyway. These are these are fundamental elements that in my opinion, are going to change elections in, in dramatic ways in the future because of what, that these are, these are real just gems of information that kind of explain Utah voters. Well, we look forward to breaking some of those down with you uh, in the coming weeks and months too, Frank. But it, it is such an interesting observation because when uh, you had people like, uh, like Jim DeBacchus, for example, going out there saying to, hey, all the Democrats, it's time for you to affiliate to participate in the Republican primary, which for those, those listening, the Repu- you have to register as a Republican to vote in the Republican primary. And um, there, there are at least you know 10,000 people who fell off the rolls of the Democratic Party and think that they landed on the rolls of the Republicans for this time. You know, I know that I heard from some of those Democrats out there that they, they just wanted to be part of this process. But what you said is just so interesting because people thought, well, this is the spoiler, right? This is the group that's going to consolidate around one person. I mean, do you really have an idea why that just wasn't the case at all? It's like people affiliated and then they still could not be counted on for just one particular candidate. No, they could not. And I think what, what happened is while, while Huntsman's campaign did a good job of trying to convince a bunch of number of unaffiliated voters to switch over, you had a whole bunch of people that kind of – the Jim DeBacchus thing, even though they went out to 60,000 you know, left of center, that was a, I think that was a big deal because that, that kind of gave the, uh, the, the, the dog whistle that it was okay to do it. But also it, that was a part of a conversation that was happening like – one of the things, too, we have to keep in mind is that Chris Peterson, who's a Democratic nominee, he's a very nice guy, but he is not well-known at all. No one knows Chris Peterson. So the other element you had in all this, you didn't have like a Ben McAdams or a Jenny Wilson or some really well-known Democrat that, that was out there. So you had a lot of unaffiliates and Democrat voters saying, well, I, this, this really is going to be my chance to participate in the gubernatorial election, because I don't even know who this person is. And that yeah. that was the other that was the other dynamic too. So even though that there, there might have been this push by Huntsman campaign, these unaffiliated voters 
really were their own people. Because if, if you think about it, because yeah, I thought for sure that these unaffiliated voters would not only impact the, the outcome of the governor's race, but probably the attorney general's race, because I thought that would really help Levitt. Or it also could cause some problems for some of these very hotly contested legislative seats. And although it might have helped a little bit, boy, it really, it really followed the patterns as, as we were going into the election in terms of where the general population was, go, general Republican population was going. And I think so. What that tells you is what was working for the Republican traditional voter was also working for the unaffiliated too. Yeah, so interesting, Frank. I, I think we could spend all day long talking about this, and still, and it would still be interesting. But we're going to have to end it at that one. Great analysis, like always. Thank you so much for keeping us informed. Hey, well, thank you, guys. Have a great weekend. You too. Okay, stay with us. Next, we have Mel Desai. We're talking about restaurants. How do we keep them safe? How do we go?